My name is Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here. Um, if you weren't awake when you came into the room, you're awake now, right? What a first set. Was that awesome or what? I, I love uh, when our band really kicks it up a notch. That was great. Well, we're in this series, as Paul said, called Life Apps. And what we're talking about is one particular piece of advice that was given to the church uh, by James, who was the brother of Jesus. And it was in James 1.22. This is our key verse for the whole series. And it says this, Do not merely listen to the word, And so deceive yourselves. In other words, James says, if you just listen to the word and you're deceiving yourself, he says, instead, do what it says. James is saying it's not enough to sit in church on Sunday and maybe get a little emotional or convicted by something that's been said. It's not enough to just hear what's been said and feel guilty about it if you don't go do something with it. Instead, he says, do something about it. You know, for the, the Christian, for the Christian, our time on earth is not about listening and agreeing to what happens in here. It's not about reading scripture and walking away. It's about doing and changing. When it comes to God's word, the point of scripture is to apply it and to put it into practice. And so in uh, James one twenty five, he goes on to say this. He says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom... And continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, well, they will be blessed. I mean, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want freedom, right? Who doesn't want to be blessed in what they do? Who doesn't want to experience more joy in their life? I mean, greater significance and greater purpose. That's what we all want, I think. That's why we're here on a morning like today. So two weeks ago, we talked about how forgiveness uh, leads to freedom. And then last week, we talked about confession and how when we, when we mess up, when we confess that to somebody else, that leads to freedom. And today, we want to spend some time talking about freedom as it has to do with our personal finances, with our money. It's always exciting when we talk about money in church, right? Uh, hopefully, you've invited some friends to come with you today. Uh, we, it always causes a little consternation when we talk about finances. First, there are people who don't give. Uh, who don't always give, or who come from a perspective that maybe for some very good reason, uh, the church only wants my money. And then there are people who are thinking, yeah, I hope my friend hears this. You know, I hope uh, my husband hears this, or my wife hears this. I hope my neighbor hears this message. Um, And so with all the heartache around money, why do we even talk about it? Well, we talk about it because Jesus talked about it a lot. In fact, if we read the New Testament, if we read uh, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, what we see is that Jesus talked about money more than just about anything else. In fact, more about uh, money than everything else except the kingdom of God itself. And why is that? Well, because who doesn't struggle with fear and anxiety when it comes to money? I mean, who doesn't worry that we won't have enough? Who, Who doesn't experience some trust issues when it comes to the pressure that money creates in your life? I mean, how many of us ever feel pressure to keep up with the people around you, to drive the same cars and take the same vacations and go to the same restaurants with the same artsy, tattooed waiters and waitresses serving the same organic, hormone-free, locally grown food? I mean, we all feel that pressure, right? I think the desire for money has the ability more than anything else to to keep us from experiencing the fullness of life that God has for us. Money stands in the way of experiencing the freedom that God has planned for followers of Jesus. It may surprise you that this problem of faith and trust in money is not unique to us today then, but it's something that Christians struggled with even 2,000 years ago. Now, by the way, all the food back then was organic and hormone-free and locally grown because there's no other way to get it. 
So our text today comes from a, from a man uh, we know as the Apostle Paul, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can open them there. We're going to spend the whole morning there. But Paul grew up as a Jew, okay, not as a Christian, but as a Jew. So he was mostly familiar with Jewish cultures. And in Jewish culture, they had a thing called the tithe, or giving a tenth of one's income to support the temple. And then Paul wrote two letters, actually he wrote three letters, but we have two of them here, to a church in a place called Corinth. And the second of these letters are where most of our discussion will take place today. We have them in the New Testament now as 1st and 2nd Corinthians. You can tell that 1st Corinthians is the first letter he wrote, right? And 2nd Corinthians is the second one, and he wrote that later. And he wrote it to these Christians uh, in Corinth, which was a a part of the Greek, kind of the Greek area, the Greek empire. Um, And these people wouldn't have grown up, most of them, in a Jewish culture. So they didn't have this same background uh, that the Jews would have grown up with, that Paul grew up with. You know, they don't... They don't have this background in how to live under Christ, how to experience true freedom. And so we're going to start in 2 Corinthians 9.6. So again, if you have your Bible, you can open it, and that way you can make some notes in there if you want. 2 Corinthians 9.6. He says this, Paul says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. I wonder how many of you uh, planted a garden this year? Have planted a garden? A few of you? Good. We have a small garden in our backyard, and every spring we feel like it's time to get our hands dirty. And so we get out and work the soil and and plant the seeds that we'd like to eat, right, later in the year. Uh, We hope to see it turn into food. It doesn't always happen that way, but that's our goal. When we go plant something, we hope that we'll get a return on that. If you have a garden, you do the work of gardening now, right, in the spring. Um, You choose your plants, you uh, work the soil, you keep the weeds out, you water the garden when you need to, maybe a little fertilizer here and there, and then you wait. Right? You plant now with the hopes of reaping a harvest later in the year. Well, the anticipation with something like a garden is a lot like the God-given longing that each of us has to do something great and to experience something amazing with our lives. When we start to get later in our years, we all want to have something to show for the work that we've put in. Right? We want to have a life that's made a difference. Well, that's the freedom that James was talking about in James 1.25 when he says that the, the, who, he looks into the true law that gives freedom. That's the kind of freedom he's talking about. And according to Paul, the answer to financial freedom, of how to have financial freedom, is to sow a lot of seed. You know, he says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but whoever sows generously, if you want to reap generously at the end of your life, right, at the end of whatever period you're looking at, to give generously to causes that matter, that's the way that you do that. When Paul starts this verse, he says, remember this, right? Second uh, Corinthians 9, 6 starts with remember this, which says, it tells us that that wasn't something that he made up. All right, that that was a phrase that would have been used in popular culture at that time. It's maybe something like... Uh, you know, what goes around comes around. It's one of those, um, one of those, what they call idioms, right? An idiom, one of those things that you say that everybody just kind of knows what it means. And so when Paul, I mean, you wouldn't say, remember this, and then tell somebody something they've never heard before, right? You say, remember this, and you're telling them something that they already know. Well, that's what Paul's doing. He says, remember this. And, you know, he's insinuating that this is something they've heard before. And so Paul is borrowing a widely known, probably statement uh, for these people, and he's giving it a whole new meaning. This is often called the law of the harvest, all right? You reap what you sow. And and there's two implications to this. First of all, if you sow corn, if you plant corn, you get corn, right? Think about it. You wouldn't sow corn and expect to have orange trees pop up. That doesn't make any sense, right? But sometimes we expect that with our finances. But not only that, so it's, it's what you sow, you reap what you sow, but it's also how much you sow. 
The more you sow, the more you reap. How many of you have ever had a garden to find out that you had way too much? Like zucchini, right? You plant uh, 10 zucchini plants in your garden, and all of a sudden you have so much zucchini, you don't know what to do with it. And so you're taking it to work, and all your friends are making zucchini bread, and you take them zucchini, and they bring you back a loaf of zucchini bread, and you've got zucchini bread in your freezer all winter long because all of your friends used all your zucchini to make zucchini bread because that's, honestly, that's all anybody knows to do with zucchini, right? And so you plant it, you get a huge harvest, and you reap from that harvest, right? On the other hand, you don't plant two lettuce seeds and expect to eat salad all summer, right? Because you reap what you sow. The more you plant, the more you gather. That's what Paul was saying. Now, this was particularly relevant to the farms of this day because here's what happened. For farmers in that time, now today, if there are any farmers in the room, you know this, you uh, plant your corn, you harvest your corn, you send it all the way to the market, and the next year you buy new seed, right? And you plant. Well, in those days, because we all have hybrid seeds, they're all patented, you can't do anything with them. Well, in those days, what you did, you harvest your crop, and the very first thing you did was you decide what? How much seed I'm going to set aside, how much seed I'm going to invest, right, for the next season. That's what happened. And, and how much seed, you know, the answer to that question, how much seed I'm going to invest for the future, is going to determine in large part how successful their enterprise is going to be going forward. So Paul takes this uh, statement, this phrase that was intended for farms, and he applies it to our money and our finances. He says, in the same way that a farmer who sows generously will reap generously, a person who gives generously with their finances will be blessed generously. You know, put another way, the more generously we give, the more abundantly God provides. Okay, but just like you can't start a garden in September and expect to get a great harvest, You shouldn't wait to start investing your financial resources in the kingdom of God. That's what Paul's warning about in this letter. See, in 1 Corinthians, in the first letter he wrote to this church, Paul wrote uh, about how the Christians in Jerusalem, in the very first church that we read about in Acts, okay, the Christians in Jerusalem who were mostly Jewish converts to Christianity, how they were being persecuted and suffering in their faith and suffering financially. Now, Paul saw this as an opportunity for a church like the one in Corinth to come alongside them and help provide for them financially. See, what had happened in the first church, if you read the book of Acts, you see the first church in Jerusalem, and this um, group uh, of people, mostly Jews, you know, had this background that they were going to give the first tenth, or tithe, the first tenth of everything that they earned to the church, to the temple. And that continued when they started this first church. But what happened was when the Holy Spirit took over this first church, they started giving so generously that what we see in Acts is these people in the first church gave away everything. They sold everything they had and invested it in the church. And that was what was happening in Jerusalem. And then so later with this church in Corinth, we find out this first church in Jerusalem was struggling a little bit financially. And so Paul says to the first church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians, hey, you should take up an offering to invest in this church over here um, in Jerusalem. Well, at the time of the writing of 2 Corinthians, that offering still hadn't happened. Now, we don't know why the church in Corinth hadn't followed through. I mean, it could be for the same reason uh, that we see today. I mean, maybe times were tough in Corinth, too. You know, people in the church were concerned about their own financial situation. You know, for some people, maybe they just wanted to keep a greater portion of their earnings. You know, it's the same reasons why Christians are reluctant to give today or why so many are inconsistent. It's fear, it's greed, it's uncertainty. You know, we don't know for sure. But whatever the reason, the Christians in Corinth weren't giving as Paul directed them, and so he wrote this letter. Now, as Paul reminds them of the law of the harvest, in doing that, he's also teaching us about living for God and the life that God has marked out for us. 
According to Paul, the best way to overcome the dominance and the pressure that money can have over us is to establish a life of giving generously. Because Paul realized this, that generous living leads to freedom. Generous living leads to freedom. You know, when James talks about freedom, this is what Paul's talking about. Generous living leads to that. It feels a little counterintuitive, doesn't it? That giving away money leads to financial freedom. Yes, when you factor in the law of the harvest, that's true. When you give money to eternal causes, you're not only investing in something bigger than yourself, but you force yourself to become more dependent on God's blessing and God's provision to take care of your needs. You know, the world says keep it for yourself. Take care of your needs first. But in God's kingdom, generous living leads to freedom. Now, that word generous uh, or generosity in the Greek uh, is, the, is the Greek word haplates. It, it's said four times in six verses that we're talking about this morning. In the English language, it means to be liberal in giving or sharing, generous, right? But in the original Greek, I think that word could be translated into uh, caringly or to something you care about. It literally means open-hearted. All right? In other words, Paul says, invest in what you care about. Invest as your heart is open to it, is what he's trying to say. Practically speaking, um, you know, he says this. He says, but what does it mean as far as our dollars and cents are concerned? You know, what does that mean to be open-hearted? Well, practically speaking, um, what does that look like? Paul addresses that in the next verse, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. He says this. He says, each of you uh, should give what you have decided in your heart to give. All right, so he says, each of you should give. Each means how many? All, right? Everybody. Each of you should give. It was a very personal instruction. Paul's saying, you know, if somebody says, but, but he doesn't, it's not, that's not for you. That's not for them, all right? This is for you. Each of you should give. It's very personal. Uh, he called every believer in the Corinthian church to give. He expected every person, every family to contribute. If you're a believer, a follower of Christ, Paul says, each of you should give. Now, the church in Corinth was full of all kinds of different people. There were uh, slaves, uh, there were working class people, and then there were very, very wealthy uh, people who would have had high places in society. Some of the people had a lot of money. Uh, some of them had not much at all. And that means that Paul didn't expect them all to give the same thing or the same amount, but he did expect them all to give something. And that's what he says. He says, each of you should give. Not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. Just as God was wanting to do something through the gifts of his church, but more importantly, he desired to do something in the life of each of those people. So when you give, it does something in your life to increase their faith, to increase their trust in him, uh, to continue leading them into freedom. So he says this, he says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. All right, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So he tells them to make this conscious decision about what they intend to give. This is just fascinating to me. In other words, he says, don't give based on how you feel at the time. You know, if you wait for the offering plate to come around and you look down at your checkbook, you look at how much you have left, or you open up your wallet and see what's in there, Paul says, you're too late. You know, if you're thinking about the bills you still have to pay and how much time is left till the end of the month and, and who you have to go to lunch with between now and then, you're, you're too late. He's inviting them to consider their income, consider their assets, maybe talk it over with their family, and decide up front how much they're going to give. But I think he's challenging their faith, too. I think Paul's encouraging them to pray about their gift. He says, what you've decided in your heart. He's pushing them to allow God to speak into their lives and to direct their giving. Notice he says, don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. He doesn't want them giving out of pressure. 
He doesn't want them to respond to some pastor's message because I feel guilty about it, and so I'm going to start giving more. Uh, He wants them to be thoughtful and faithful in their giving. Now, remember, the word generous here means open-hearted, right? Meaning their giving should be an expression of the heart. Paul wants their gifts to say something about their love for God. He knows that if their love for God is growing, if their faith is growing, it's likely that their giving will grow too. If their giving is voluntary, it's more likely to be filled with love, right? And, and be given to causes they care about. It's more likely to be filled uh, with, with gratitude. That's why Paul reminds everybody that God loves a cheerful giver. And by the way, that verse is exactly why we applaud uh, when the offering comes by. If you're new, if you're wondering about that, that's kind of weird, right? That's kind of crazy. Well, that's why, because the Bible tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. And so that, um, don't miss the fact that Paul's reminding them that giving is a choice, all right? that it's not a law, it's a choice to be made. You know, For the Corinthians, just like us, they were free to choose to give or not to give. You know, that was a free choice for them. They could live their way. Or they could do life God's way. But Paul reminds them, God's way is the way that leads to freedom. It's a path where we're reminded that everything we have comes from the Lord. It all belongs to him. And so that money doesn't become the dominating force in our life, we live a life of generosity. We decide to give. And so maybe you're ready to take a big step in that direction of freedom in your life especially freedom in your finances. Maybe you're ready to face your fears and start trusting God like you've never done before. You're ready to start sowing seed in a way that you can expect an abundant harvest. Let's look at some practical steps uh, you might take in the areas of your giving today uh, towards generous living. Now, remember, Paul says, don't give out of pressure or reluctance. God loves a cheerful giver, but he also said that you should decide in your heart what to give. I think a statement like that gives us um, uh, precedent for developing a plan, right? We can have a plan for how we want to give. Paul says that we should decide. That means we should be, think intentionally about it. We need to put some thought to it. We need to put some prayer to it. It gives us permission for developing a plan to get started or restarted in growing in our giving. And so I want to offer you a plan this morning about what some people call the four Ps, what some people call the four Ps of giving. And so there's four steps we're going to take. Okay, we're going to take them in order. The first one is this. These are in your notes if you want to follow along, by the way. The first P stands for priority giving. Priority giving. If you're brand new to giving, I want to challenge you to make giving a priority. And that means all of the items on your monthly budget, uh, giving to your home church should be your first priority. Not a priority, but the first priority. It means before you pay the mortgage, before you make the car payment, before you pay those student loans, uh, before you go to the grocery store, the very first check you write is to your local church and to other ministries you support. This is what my wife and I do. You know, every time we talk about this, I have to remind you that this is what we do. Uh, our giving to Genesis Church is deducted from our bank account on the same day that my paycheck goes in the bank. Now, so we give online. I know about 60% of you in this room give online, and I just want to say to you guys, thank you very much, because um, I was reminded again this morning that when that offering bag comes by, if you don't have anything to drop in it, people can give you the stink eye sometimes, right? You get the, hmm, he goes here a lot, and he never puts anything in the offering bag. Well, I'll just tell those of you who think that, 60% of our givers uh, give online, and if you're worried about what other people think about your giving, let me just say this, there's a special place in heaven for you. All right, those of you who give online, you give first, you give automatically, you never forget, you don't have to think about it, but you've planned it in your heart to give online. That's what my wife and I do, um, because it's just, it's easy, and we don't have to worry about it. 
Now, we say give first, right? Make giving a priority. Well, what happens if I get paid on Monday and, church, and I don't give online, right? And church isn't until Sunday. Well, what I always tell people is go ahead and write that check out first. You know, write your checks out to any ministries you give to, including your church. Write those out and set them aside because God says the first fruits. He talks all the time in the Old Testament about first fruits. Um, so here's why. If you just wait till all the other expenses are met first, if you wait till everything else is paid first, it's going to impact the bottom line of your giving. That's just the way it is with priorities. That's why the stuff that's a priority is a priority. Whatever you place first takes precedence over everything else. And your generosity tends to be highest right after receiving provision, right? We all know this. We all see this. Uh, when it's payday, you're more likely to go out to dinner that night, right, than the day before. Now, we tend to be highest in generosity, highest in, in willingness to uh, spend, to give money away. Waiting tends to minimize our generosity because somehow money just <laughs> evaporates from your checking account uh, between the time you get it and the time it's time to give as life gets in the way. But if you prioritize your giving, if you make, your, make giving your priority, everything else takes its proper place in line behind what you give to God. When it comes to generous living and, and giving to God, it, we do it best when we honor God with the first portion of our income instead of giving him leftovers. We all want God's first portion, right? We don't want leftovers from him. And so that's what we're instructed to give back. Priority giving means anytime you get paid for any reason, okay, you give God's portion first. Then you use what's remaining to meet your own needs. It's called priority giving. Uh, the second P stands for percentage giving. You know, many people want to know where to start with their giving. Remember, Paul challenged the people to think about, right, to decide in their hearts what they would give. Uh, what nerds like me like about percentage giving is that it makes the whole giving pro- process objective, all right? And so I don't have to think about it. When you give a percentage of your income, it's pretty cut and dried. So let's talk about tithing for a moment. Because this is a confusing topic for many people, and every time we talk about giving, uh, the topic of tithing comes up. To fully understand where the tithe comes from, uh, you have to spend a whole lot of time looking at the Old Testament, at Levitical law, at the New Testament theology of grace. Well, we're not going to do that this morning. Um, But if you want to have that conversation sometime, I'm happy to have it with you. So let's just look at it like this. Tithe, the word tithe, literally means a tenth. Ten percent has always been a benchmark. Okay, the very first time we see that is in the book of Genesis when Abraham uh, gives a tenth. And, and for thousands of years, 10% was the bar. And it became the law, right? For the Jewish believers, a tenth was the law. All the way up until this first church that I talked about in Acts where they were selling everything to give it to the church. Because of this baseline in scripture, we can kind of conclude that 10% is a good place to start. I mean, it seemed to be something about a tenth that is appropriate to God. When God spoke on the subject of giving, he required 10% from the Old Testament believers. When Jesus came on the scene, he affirmed the tithe, but he challenged people to give generously. It's almost as if Jesus viewed the tithe, or 10%, as a great place to start. You know, but over and over again, he challenged people to do even more. Whatever the case, I think that 10% is a great reference point for us in our giving today. Here's why. A tenth is still small enough to be doable by anyone, but it's big enough that you notice it. I mean, it's big enough that for many of us, we can honestly say, God, if I'm going to do this, I need your help. Like, this isn't going to happen automatically. I can't just have my income cut by 10% tomorrow and continue living like I'm living now. So whether you're ready to tithe or not, I want to encourage you to pick a number and begin giving a percentage. Make it a priority. Every pay period, make it a line item in your budget, 
as a way of trusting and growing in this area of generosity, start giving the first percentage of your income every month. You know, if you can't do 10%, could you do five? If you can't do five, can you do three? Pray and ask God to increase your faith and to trust him. But it's so important that you start somewhere. If you're not doing this, or maybe you gave it up a long time ago, don't put it off anymore. You know, remember, James said that only if you do what the word says will you be blessed. You know, will, will you get freedom? You're, you're not going to experience the full blessing that God has planned for you until you start giving. At some point, you've got to do it. You've got to step out, make the decision, and start trusting. Now, if you're a little skeptical about this, I want you to know that I've been right where you are. I've been in your seat. Well, not in this auditorium, but in another auditorium. Uh, 14 years ago, uh, another pastor challenged me to start giving from the stage. <clears throat> I did, out of guilt. And I started giving a percentage, uh, maybe 0.6% or something like that. But over the years, it continued to grow. I mean, I continued to be challenged by God. And every time I heard a sermon or a, 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 a podcast that talked about that, anytime I talked with other believers about giving, um, I would go back and increase my giving because as my faith And my love for God began to grow. I began trusting him with my money. It was one of the last places, honestly, that I trusted his work in my life. And I know many of you are probably that same way. It took probably five or six years for my wife and I to get uh, to a tithe or to a tenth. But as my income kept growing, so did the amount we gave. It was a little scary at times. And to be honest, when you're young and you're not making a lot of money, a tenth isn't that much. But as you get more advanced in your career and you start doing better and you're making more money, well, a tenth actually gets harder because it's a lot more money. Well, we're well beyond a tithe now, and we don't regret a single dollar we've ever given away. So make giving a priority. It's two, set a percentage and be consistent in it. Next, the third P, be progressive in your giving. And that means for those of us who've been giving consistently for a while now, would you pray about increasing your giving? If you've been giving 10% for 10 years, maybe it's time to think about changing that to 12% or 15%. Now, here's why this is a good idea. Your faith and your faithfulness grow hand in hand, all right? You can't separate them. So if your faith is going to grow and thrive, well, your faithfulness has to grow too. Your, your generosity has to grow too. I mean, many of you are giving at a level that at one point was a real stretch for you, but now you don't even think about it anymore. If that's the case for you, I just want to challenge you to start giving more. Now, I've seen and heard stories of people doing things like this, people who increase their giving by a percentage point every year. So two years ago, a year and a half ago or so, I stood on this stage and committed to you as, that as your pastor that my family and I, we were going to start doing this. We, we started growing our percentage uh, by 1% of my income every year. We've been doing that for a few years now. And uh, it's really blessed us. I mean, it's really given us the opportunity to give to things that we wouldn't have ever thought about giving to. Uh, before our, our giving to Genesis Church has grown and our giving to other ministries and other, um, other chances to give have grown because of that. Another way people grow and expand their giving is by uh, giving a percentage to Genesis, but gen- giving outside the walls of this church to other ministry causes that they're passionate about. And I love hearing these stories. I love it when God's moving in the hearts of people to be excited about something that's going on in his church with a capital C, but outside the walls of this small C church. I mean, trust me, after a while, it's easy to tithe. It becomes habit. It becomes second nature. But the point of our giving is to be exciting, to be spiritual, to be a putting it all on God experience. Giving back to God is about trusting him to provide for everything that we need. All right, so the fourth P. The fourth P is called prompted giving. 
This is where you're simply open to the Holy Spirit moving in you. Like you, you, you want to, uh, most of my generous friends will tell you this is where the real magic happens. This is the fun part of giving. After you've got your regular giving set, you're giving a percentage on a consistent basis, um, the chance to fix a car for somebody who's in desperate need, uh, the chance to pay for a plane ticket for somebody to go see a sick relative, uh, an anonymous financial gift to help a family that they see is struggling to make ends meet, that people who are generous, truly generous, will tell you this is where they have the most fun. All right, because I'm your pastor, I have the privilege of hearing about uh, some unusual or special gifts from people in our church, these over and above kind of gifts. And one of the things that I find is there are often stories associated with these gifts. Sometimes it's on the income side. It's a, a surprise bonus at work. It's an inheritance. It's something I didn't count on receiving. But other times people are moved by what God is doing around them, and they feel the need to sacrifice uh, a planned trip, or an upcoming purchase, and, and they take that money and they give it towards something that God is doing in his church. A great example, a friend of mine came up to me recently just this spring and said, hey, I want to give some money to a certain family. I, I see how they parent their kids. I see how they serve in the church, and I know that they're struggling. Can you help me figure out the best way to make a big investment in that family? And I could tell that he was having fun with it, like he really wanted to make that fun. Now, some, some of you will say, well, that's what I do. That, that's how I give. I give on a prompt. I, give, I do prompted giving. I, I listen for God to tell me, and that's when I give. But it doesn't really work like that. Okay, Paul says that each person should decide in their heart what they want to give. Now, to be faithful and effective, prompted giving works best when it's the icing on the cake, not when it's the whole cake. All right? In other words, the best way to do prompted giving is above and beyond what you already contribute to the church and what you, other causes you already believe in. Priority giving, percentage giving, progressive giving, and prompted giving. What's holding you back? What's keeping you from trusting or growing in this area of giving? Is it fear? Messy circumstances? Is it trusting in God? Those are some of the same barriers the people in Corinth faced. Let's go on to verse 8, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says this, And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God promises to provide what we need. Now, that doesn't mean, okay, I want to make this clear, that he provides what we think we need, or what society says we need. This is not a guarantee that if you give X dollars, you'll get Y dollars back. It's not a guarantee that you'll never experience financial challenges. It's not a guarantee that you won't have to say no to some things. Uh, Some of the most generous givers I know have to say no a lot. It's a promise that God knows what you need. And he promises to provide that. And what that means is he might provide you with abundant financial resources. I've seen that happen. He might provide you instead with wisdom to manage what you already have. You know, he might provide you with a raise. His blessing might take the form of a second job. Or it might just take the form of learning to be content with what you already have. His blessing might be helping you realize that you can invest in eternity or you can invest in stuff. See, generosity is all about a harvest of significance, right? 
We're always looking at the harvest. The more generous we are with God, the more generous he is with us. And by investing in his kingdom first, we get to witness firsthand the work that he is doing in and around our lives. And the more excited we get about what God is doing in the world. Verse 10 says, Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Now this is interesting. Because what Paul's saying here is, hey, remember who gave you that seed in the first place, right? You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through this, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Paul says, not only does God promise to increase your faith and your trust and to provide for all that you need, but he says, your generosity will make a difference, It will result in thanksgiving for God. You'll get to see the result of that. That's the harvest that he's talking about. It's not so much about what God does in your finances personally. It's about what God does in your heart as you see those dollars you're invested. You know, as you invest in Genesis Church, for instance, and you get to see people finding their way back to God, Paul says that's one way that you're blessed in what you do. You get to see what's happening. You know, the same thing is true with all of your giving at Genesis. Uh, Your giving will result in thanksgiving to God. It's already happening through so many of our ministry partners, even around the world. Uh, Many of you know of Josh and Heidi Tandy and Movement Church and the work that's happening uh, down around Cincinnati. And uh, they're doing amazing things at Movement Church. And um, Josh was our student pastor, if you don't know, left here a couple years ago to go plant this church, uh, came to a community that they've never lived in before. They didn't know anybody there. Moved to the south side of Cincinnati in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, and planted a church down there. And it's growing. And they're having an impact in their neighborhood. It's people like Carl and Danielle Gidley. The Gidleys attended Genesis for a while, and now they're serving with crew on Harvard's campus. Now think about who goes to Harvard. Presidents go to Harvard, you know, um, CEOs go to Harvard, uh, entertainers go to Harvard. People that go to Harvard are going to change the world. And Carl and Danielle are getting the chance to invest in these people before they go change the world. And we're getting the chance to invest in Carl and Danielle because of your generosity. David and Carrie Hartman are serving in South Asia. We're supporting them every month. They're serving in a place that none of us would want to be. Um, telling Muslims about Jesus. And we get to see the results of that. We get to hear what's happening in South Asia because of their, um, because of their investment there. Uh, people like Last Bell Ministries in Ukraine. You know, Ukraine is a place that's, uh, there's a lot of turmoil happening there. It's a place that most of us wouldn't want to spend a whole lot of time. But Last Bell Ministries is doing amazing things through moms in Ukraine. It's investments like Nehemiah Vision Ministries in Haiti. And the way that our uh, great ministry partners down there continue to invest in the people of Haiti and in the children of Haiti in schools as we go down and run English camps and and, uh, help build up the the, the cities and towns around Nehemiah Vision Ministries. It's local outreach. It's things like Kids Against Hunger, like uh, spring break totes that we did this spring and then coming up just around the corner. It's our backpack drive. Um, that's coming up where we're going to provide school supplies again for kids uh, right here in Hamilton County who can't afford their own school supplies. It's hard to think about going back to school already if we're starting to talk about back to school drive. Your giving is making a difference. People are finding their way back to God here. Generous living leads to freedom. If you're not giving, you're missing out on a life of freedom that can make all the difference. You're missing the opportunity to help others find their way back to God. And the most important thing, the most eternal thing of all is this, the way that Paul ends uh, this part of his letter. 
2 Corinthians 9.15. He says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know, the most important thing about generosity is it comes out of a response for what God has already given to us. You know, scripture teaches that God sent his one and only son to come to earth and die for us that so, so that whoever believes in him won't have to die, but will have eternal life. It's the gift of eternal life, the indescribable gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. It's the promise that if we trust our life to Jesus, we trust our treasure to him, then one day in heaven, we'll get to live with him forever. And we'll get to meet people who wouldn't be there, but for our investment. And that gift, the gift of eternal life through the cross, is what we get to celebrate today uh, through the taking of communion. And so here's what we're going to do. Here's what we believe about communion at Genesis Church. If you're a Christian, if you've made that decision to follow Jesus, you're welcome to take communion. You don't have to be a part of this church. We've got four tables set up. There's two in the front and two in the back. I'm going to ask you as soon as I'm done up here, you can come forward or come back um, and take uh, one set of cups. There are two cups. There's the bread and the juice on top. The, The bread represents the body of Christ, which was broken for you. And Jesus tells us that whenever we take that, we should remember him. And then the the juice represents the blood of Christ, which was spilled for you. Jesus reminds us whenever we take that, we should remember him. And so um, I'll allow you guys to come up. We'll give you a little bit of time. Cameron's going to play. Give you a little bit of time to come up and and grab the elements and take them on your own in your seat. Uh, And then we're going to finish up with one more uh, worship song.